Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing f- Put that in. I don't... So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip. 6-1 to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to ask is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry? Just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. And this, he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the 100 years at the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget a reminder, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, everything we discuss here. Uh, keep interactive, and we talk during the show, during any airtime, whether it's in Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday night, even uh, during the week. Just uh, hit, hit me up, John underscore Pielli, and we keep discussion interactive. A lot of great stuff to get into. i got some very good interviews planned. Within the first hour, we're going to hear from 1969 World Series champion Ron Swoboda, also got um, former left-hand pitcher in the major leagues for 15 seasons, 12 different teams, and that's Ron Vallone, who will be part of the show in the second hour. But the first thing I want to get into is I'm going to play a little clip, courtesy of ESPN, of David Ortiz. Last time he spoke in regards to his contract. I'm going to play it, and then I'm going to give some obvious reasons why this shouldn't even have to be a story. So here it is, courtesy of ESPN. Being one of the greatest, I ever wear this uniform, too. Some people forget about. I don't like to talk about that. I don't like to sound like that, but sometimes you got to let it know. I think it's very disrespectful for someone out there to be saying that I'm greedy, that, that all I want to talk about is contract, that all, when am I going to talk about contract when I retire? I, I think it's a situation. It ends up speaking for itself, essentially. And the reason I'm even bringing it up on the show, and I know if it's been brought up on many other programs, whether it's TV or radio, particularly in the Boston area, why is this even an issue? It's an issue because David Ortiz can't be given one extra year by the Boston Red Sox. I mean, do I have to explain what he has meant for that franchise? Three World Series championships. Do they win the World Series in 2013 without him? Yes or no? Yes or no? I mean, it's a silly situation. The fact that Ortiz is signed through this season, coming off of a season he had last year, without a doubt the most valuable player on this Boston Red Sox team. And I know... You talk about the way the team was set up with all the chemistry and the camaraderie and the beards and everything that they ended up you know, doing to unify itself. They don't win a World Series without David Ortiz. They're not anywhere near the perennial AL champion team that they are without David Ortiz. And this is a silly situation, a silly conversation that we even have to have right now. Should David Ortiz get another year extension from the Boston Red Sox? Are you freaking kidding me? I mean, you're talking about the best players in a game getting paid $30 million. And, a, you know, David Ortiz is making $15 million. All he does is wants another year guaranteed at $15 million. The, you know, the guy has done more than he's had to do. 
he is one of probably the top five best Red Sox of all time. And, you know, you want to factor guys like Pedro and Manny Ramirez in there, and you want to say where they end up ranking. You know about Ted Williams and Yastrzemski and Bobby Doerr and, you know, a bunch of other guys you could come up with. And, and I'm sure you could have a nice debate about it, but tell me that David Ortiz isn't in your top five for what he's done for the Boston Red Sox organization. And for the Red Sox, honestly, this is an organization that's done a very good job, obviously, over the last 12 years. They've won three World Series championships. They've done a ridiculous job in recycling a certain amount of players and talent on this organization. You look at what won the World Series in 2004. You look at what did it again in 2007. And obviously 2013, David Ortiz is the only holdover from those other two World Series championships. And it's not like he was just hanging on. It's not like he was Mitch Richmond of the Los Angeles Lakers after a very long career just sitting on the bench being the 12th man, per se, you know, with the NBA comparison uh, to hold on and grab himself another World Series championship. They would not have won it without him. There's no question about it. There's no way that the Red Sox would have won the third World Series championship in 2013 without David Ortiz. Now what are the Red Sox doing? The Red Sox are actually allowing this to linger on into the season when you're talking about a guy who was as valuable to that organization as any player was to any team in Major League Baseball last season. Where are the Red Sox without David Ortiz in the postseason last year? And I'm sorry to keep repeating myself, but what would the Boston Red Sox have been if this guy was not around? And you're looking at an organization and a media, and obviously he goes after the media and the quote-unquote haters, the guys that you know are, are always getting on his case in regards to the contract and the way things are set up and calling him greedy and stuff like that. These are the same people that were ready to give up on him a couple of years ago when he was struggling. He was going through a rough stretch. And what did he do? He took the team on his back this past season, had one of his better seasons, certainly not home run-wise, RBI-wise, but was absolutely the most valuable player on that team. And you talk about the way the Red Sox and Ben Sherrington were able to dish off the contracts to the Los Angeles Dodgers, where you're talking about Carl Crawford or Adrian Gonzalez or Josh Beckett or even Nick Punto. David Ortiz has been the one constant, and he didn't just hang around for this season. He did a little more than that. Ortiz was as good of a player as anybody in all Major League Baseball and was the leader of the Boston Red Sox team. And they do not win the World Series without them. So, you know, the Red Sox, who have done a lot of good things, are dropping the ball here, without a doubt, in regards to the way David Ortiz's situation has been handled. There's no reason why they can't extend him one year. It's not like he, he has done what he did and is asking for five more years. He's not asking for a $100 million contract. He's not asking for what a lot of players in Major League Baseball are getting that haven't done half of what David Ortiz has done in a Boston Red Sox uniform. And you want to make this a conversation about steroids? Listen, I, I, I told you my feelings about steroids already. They're, they're in the game. You want to pinpoint and say this guy did, this guy didn't. I, I don't think it takes away from what David Ortiz has meant to the Boston Red Sox organization. You want to say he's juicing up in the on-deck circle? Hey, maybe maybe he is. If you see it, you know, talk about it. But you know, the bottom line is what he is doing on the field. And that led the Boston Red Sox to a World Series championship last year. And it's not like he came out of nowhere. This has been a constant in the team's lineup while they've gone through many changes. Through Manny Ramirez, through Jason Bay, through Adrian Gonzalez. And the names keep going on of all the players that were there at certain points when the Boston Red Sox were having success. 
And now the Red Sox, their most valuable player, a guy that absolutely his number 34 is going to be hanging up there with the greats to ever put on a Boston Red Sox uniform. He said it himself, and he wasn't being arrogant about it. If you think he was, he was stating the truth. The guy is one of the best Red Sox of all time. And for him to go year to year, like in some cases it's been a simple offer of arbitration when he's been a free agent and he accepted it. He has done more than he's asked. You know, guys like Manny Ramirez and Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford are the guys getting those big, huge contracts. And David Ortiz never said anything about it because he's a team player. And, of course, the terrible thing that happened with the Boston Marathon, he, he, he was the guy that became the spokesperson to it to say, hey, let's unify Boston. And I'm obviously not going to repeat what he said, but the bottom line is David Ortiz deserves to be treated better by the Boston Red Sox organization, deserves to have himself another guaranteed year before the start of the season. And if the Red Sox don't do it, they're dropping the ball and they're mistreating one of the greatest players in the history of their storied franchise. What we're going to do is take a brief break. We're going to get back, and Ron Swoboda will be joining the program, talking a little bit about Ralph Kiner and his playing career, and, of course, the catch in the 1969 World Series. This is John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We'll be right back after this. Hey, guys and gals. Want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WING. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal. Served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there! Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe DeLaSanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And, and we're your favorite tailgaters. Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters? Welcome 
back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Lots of great stuff to get into, and I was happy to get a chance to speak with 1969 World Series champ Ron Swoboda. And, of course, he's known for the great catch he made in the World Series where he left his feet in a situation where the game was totally changed by his miraculous catch, never known as the most fleet-footed outfielder, but he worked very hard at it and became a legitimate defensive outfielder throughout the most parts of his career. But here's a guy that was also an early Met as early as 1965, played on some bad teams and you know gets to talk about a lot of things, including his relationship with Ralph Kiner. And, of course, Ralph passed uh, last week, sad note, at the age of 91, a guy who certainly was part of my childhood, original Mets broadcaster, 50-something years, and you know, we, we touched on that a lot during the show last week, and it's great to get some reflection from Ron. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this interview with former Mets, Yankees, and Montreal Expos outfielder Ron Swoboda. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with longtime Major League outfielder and 1969 World Series champion Ron Swoboda. Ron, thanks for having a couple minutes for that. Hey, no problem. Uh, I live in New Orleans. There's no snow here. And uh, my wife and I were working out in the garden. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I tell you, man, it's a lot better over there than it is here, man, as we brace for yet another another snowstorm over here that we're supposed to get tonight. I was in Jersey last week trying to get out of Newark, and uh, it was quite an adventure uh, with the weather. Yeah, it looks like it's not going to stop anytime soon, but you figure, hey, a couple more weeks and hopefully the weather will start clearing up and we'll get into some more baseball. This has been an amazing winter, though. I mean, it, it's been an odd winter down here for weather. With, uh, you know, it warms up for a couple of days and then gets cold, cold again down in Louisiana. And uh, in New York, you're getting the same thing. You're getting one little storm rolling in after another. It's, uh, it's been a strange uh, uh, end of January, beginning of uh, February, for sure. Yeah, it's been one of the, the, the uh, more, uh, I guess, intense winters that we've seen in recent time. But, of course, Ron, you, you obviously had a chance to, uh, to to know, at least on some level, Ralph Kiner, who, of course, was a longtime broadcaster for the New York Mets and, you know, a couple of days ago last week passed away at the age of 91. Um, from from your first, uh, you know, impression of it, what would you have to say about Ralph and your experience, you know, seeing him? You know, he was as decent and interesting a guy and a broadcaster who uh, told wonderful stories. And, and you know, you, he, he could make you forget he was an Hall of Fame outfielder um, uh, who could really hit. Um, and, and um, you know, you... you you spent time with him. It was all valuable. He had a razor-sharp mind. He told wonderful stories. You know, when you talk to him, uh, you know, if you've got to spend some quiet time with just him and you, you, you know, he goes all the way back with the New York Mets. And I'm, you know, I'm a Mets fan, you know, and, and, and I care about what they're doing all the time. And um, he could... Uh, he could tell you some stories about way back when, before you know, before I showed up in '64 uh, with them, with the Mets in spring training. Um, uh, you, you know, and it was fascinating stuff. And he, he told good stories well. 
No, he absolutely did. And I tell you, you, had a, you know, one thing that I always heard about Ralph Kiner, I was never fortunate enough to have a chance to meet him, but he he, he always seemed to have that, that that mindset that nobody was ever too good to be around him. He treated, you know, he treated, uh, you know, the player that nobody knows about just like the player that, you know, was heading to the Hall of Fame or just the same way that he treated a fan that he was just, you know, like a, a middle-aged man that he was meeting for the first time. I wish I could have uh, uh, swung the bat like him. I wish I could have been a broadcaster like him, and I did some broadcasting, and I'm doing broadcasting now, and, and I wish I could be Ralph Connor on so many different levels. Um, but I, you know, I think the man behind all of that was as admirable as anybody I've ever met. Uh, look, in 1969, you know, there was no... There was very few teams that had anything uh, you would consider a hitting coach back then, and and no stadiums, virtually no stadiums, had hitting cages where you could go in and hit inside. But I was struggling in uh, you know in, in our wonderful year of '69, the World Series coming, you know, uh, which we didn't know at that point in time. But uh, I was struggling as a hitter, and I had to, you know they had a. They had a cage in St. Louis out behind the left field fence in the uh, what was then the new uh, Augie Bush Stadium, and, and they had a machine, one of those um, machines that fed you baseballs, and I asked Ralph if he'd go down there and just take a look at me and see, see, if, see if anything uh, occurred to him, and, and we just went down there and he pumped a few balls my way, and you know, said, get your hands back here, all right, look, you know, get yourself ready, get stuff, you know, that looks good, how's that feel, does that look good, and, and, you know, just did that kind of an exchange, it was, uh, you know, it, it was um, just one of those things where uh, um, he got me in a position, I started swinging the bat good, that night I went out and hit two, two run home runs off of Steve Carlton, we beat him four to three when he was setting a major league record, striking out 19 guys on the way to the World Series, you know, so... You know, Ralph Ralph was a guy I wish I had talked more about hitting with him. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know, you mentioned it earlier, once again, John Pielli here with Juan Swoboda, about how, you know, you, you knew him as a broadcaster, you knew him about his, you know, from his baseball knowledge, but it's pretty quick to forget, you know, how how great of a hitter he was. I mean, he led, he led the league in home runs. He was a great right-handed hitter who would have done a lot more in baseball um, had his bat been nice. But, Yogi Berra in the sense that you knew what he meant. <laughs> 
No, listen, and anybody who's done any radio or TV totally can relate to that because you know, there's plenty of things that I wanted to say that I know have come out, you know, maybe not the exact way. And Ralph was, you know, well known for that, but, you know, you hit it on the head. It was kind of like the Yogi Berraisms that, you know, once he says it, yeah, it sounds a little silly, but it's funny as opposed oh, to embarrassing. You know, it, but you knew what he meant, just like Yogi, you know, you knew what he meant. You know, uh, the restaurant's crowded, nobody goes there anymore, you know. Uh, you knew what he meant, you know, um, you know, things like that. You go down the road and when you come to a fork, you take it. <laughs> yeah, that's a... I love that stuff. And, you know, Ralph would, you know, Ralph talked about, you know, somebody coming up to him one time and, you know, saying, didn't you used to be Ralph Kiner? You know, and it's like, uh, that's, you know, and he would laugh about it and tell the story to everybody. So it wasn't like his ego was, uh, was up there somewhere, you know, he was, uh, very, very comfortable, very comfortable in his own skin and well should be. Well, he dated, um, he dated, um, uh, Janet Lee and, and Elizabeth Taylor. He went to the, he went to the, um, uh, Oscars, uh, with Elizabeth Taylor one time. You know, I mean, that's, um, that's playing in another league, uh, in those terms. Yeah, no question. I tell you, one thing you could definitely say about him, and obviously rest in peace, but, you know, the guy lived a full life. I mean, he, he got to experience yeah, so many was, different uh, things. He was a Navy pilot in World War II in the Pacific. I mean, um, you, you know, he flew uh, PBMs, uh, sort of anti-submarine things. Um, uh, most people didn't know anything about it. You know, he didn't spend a lot of time, you know, trying to trying to talk up his service during World War II, but he... You know, he, he enlisted. Um, he didn't wait to get drafted. Um, uh, so, you know, and, and he never, you know, he never wore that stuff around like, uh, you know, like a big medal on his chest. If, if he wanted to talk about it, he would talk about it. But, uh, you know, just an admirable guy on, on, on so many levels. And, and uh, you always felt comfortable with him. You always came away uh, feeling like you learned something uh, when, when you uh, spent time with him. Yeah, no question. Once again, John Pielli here with Ron Swoboda. Now, you know, going back to the beginning of your career, when you first started playing baseball, were you were you a Mets fan before you were signed as a free agent, or did you become a Mets fan after playing for the Mets? I, I, was, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I was an Orioles fan. Um, and, uh, you know, my favorite player was Brooks Robinson. Um, um, maybe maybe um, second to him was Gus Triandos, who uh, yeah, was a catcher with the Orioles. Um, you know, who um, actually gave me a trophy at a at a awards dinner when I was an amateur. And then when I came to spring training, the Mets brought a bunch of us young guys in in 1964, my very first year. And um, you know, they they uh, uh, we came to a pre spring training in the big league camp, and and you know. I, I I had a pretty good run and, and Casey let me hang around you know in in big league spring training so my very first time out I was in big league spring training uh, hitting off big league pitchers I hit a home run off of uh, uh, Dallas Green and 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 the catcher was Gustriandos you know <laughs> and, and you know he worked with my father in the off season my dad was um, you know service salesman and got sold cars at a Chevrolet dealership in Baltimore, you know, and, and, and he came to dinner at my house one time. You know, when he walked in there, you thought, uh, you know, uh, God himself just cracked your door, you know, and that was um, that was pretty amazing stuff for a kid who, you know, who was hoping he could play baseball. I didn't know I had a chance to play baseball, 
but um, eventually, uh, you know, a couple of years later, um, it, it, you know, it happened. And, and I still in my memory, you know, it's, it's one of those things you don't know. Way back um, in my rookie year, when Gus was playing for the Philadelphia Phillies, I think I threw Gus out at home plate. I didn't throw him out, but somebody hit a ball over my head, and he was tagged up at third base. And I think I caught the ball running away from, in right field, running away from home plate, turned and threw it to a cutoff man, who turned and threw Gus out in home plate because Gus was one of the slowest people ever to play baseball. <laughs> yeah, and I tell you, he really wasn't a bad catcher, man. And I tell you, you know, he was... He, was, he had some good years for the Orioles. Yeah. Uh, he really did have some good years playing in Baltimore and was a great guy. Hey, once again... I think he just passed away um, this year, I, I believe. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think you're right. I'll have to check that just to be sure. But you know, as you as you end up, you know, you know, getting getting yourself in into the major leagues, what what was the earliest time that you felt within your own mind? Because you kind of talked a little bit about it before about just not you know not you know being sure if you, maybe you were good enough. But when 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 did you when did you convince yourself that you were you were absolutely there? Let's put it this way: the loudest. The loudest ten I ever got as an amateur was when the Mets walked into my house back in 
Yeah, no, and that's, that's pretty interesting because you, know, you saw that happen with a lot of players that ended up and obviously you had the bonus baby rules, which was was something different and was more prevalent before before this happened. They were trying to limit the number of players you could protect so that the wealthy teams couldn't buy up all the amateur talent with bonus money. So you could only protect a couple of guys, and if you were a contender, which the Mets were not in 1965, uh, you know. You, you could keep you could keep some guys around, and the Mets did it because they made a mistake back in 1963. In the winter of '63, they lost Paul Blair, who was only you know the, the another guy that just passed away. Yeah. Uh, rest his soul. He was he was the best center fielder, or, or darn close to it. Um, and, you know, in, in the 18 years or so, he played in the big leagues. No question. And I tell you, Paul Blair was a, you know, outstanding guy. I was lucky. He was right up there. I mean, he played a shallow center field and caught everything. He broke my heart one time in Yankee Stadium when I was playing with the Yankees. You know, he ran down a ball in left center field of old Yankee Stadium. And I swear, you knew when you had a chance to hit a ball up a gap. And I thought I got all of this one. And I came around first base thinking three bases, no problem. And in old Yankee Stadium, here comes the ball looping back in to second base. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, he ran it down is what, what happened. <laughs> Nah, I tell you, man, you, you know, you end up in, you know, situations like that, man. Like, what more could I have possibly done? Well, uh, you just, you, you, you picked on the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just, you were just hoping that maybe, uh, you know, that was his day off or somebody else was playing center field that he day. He didn't have a day off. He, <laughs> he, he ran it all down. Uh, he was, a, you know, like I said, he played shallow, so he got some of the short balls, too, but he could go back on the ball with the best of them. No, absolutely. And I tell you what's great about Paul Blair is that, you know, after he retired and after he was known as, you know, the center fielder that he was, so you know, so many and actually probably two full generations of, of, of players played their center field very similar to the way Blair did. You know, if we remember before him, there weren't too many guys that played that shallow. There were some. No, I would but, think a guy like uh, Kurt Flood was, uh, you know, a pretty good center fielder with um, the Cardinals. And um, he was a deep center fielder. Uh, he played back and, and cut across, they called it. Play deep and cut across. Um, you know, and, and of course he caught everything in center field, but, but the ball in front of him, you know, he left a little room uh, short in center field. Now, very true. Once again, John Piala here with Ron Swoboda. Now, you, know, you, had, you had a chance, like you just mentioned, to play with the 1965 Mets. And amongst the group of players that ended up being on the 69 team that ended up winning the World Series, um, you know, you are amongst a small group of players that kind of saw the team go from bad to a little bit better. And then, you know, obviously improving in 1968, but all of a sudden putting it all together in 1969. Um, you know, what did you feel from being part of that experience? from 65 to 69 was the biggest uh, turning point for that team going from being a bad team to a World Series contender and eventual World Series champion? Well, you know, they had a pretty good minor league system. Whitey Herzog um, uh, was a big part of running the Mets minor league system, and I think Whitey is, you know, one of the best baseball minds out there. He knows how to put the pieces together. And, um, you know, he got in a position uh, where um, he was making some decisions on players that they were going to keep in the system. And, and Whitey, uh, Whitey was a big part of that. And, and I, I, you know, I think they, um, 
you know, they had a scouting system. Uh, they were they won. They got Tom Seaver in a in a coin flip, you know, because uh, I think the Braves or somebody tried to sign him, and they uh, they 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 made a mistake and and lost him, and we got him on a coin flip. Um, and um, you know, Jerry Kuzman shows up, and uh, you know, Tug McGraw was. You know, in that rookie season with me, Tug developed as a pretty good closer um, out of the pen. And, and uh, Ed Cranepool was on that team, and he had been in the big leagues before I got there. So, you know, those were the guys that came, you know, that made that, that, that full run from, from 65 to 69. But you just saw them. You know, we weren't full of superstars. We had pretty good pitching staff now. I mean, you know, Seaver, Kuzman, uh, Gary Gentry. Uh, Jim McAndrew, um, you know, Nolan Ryan was on that staff who was like a spot starter who came out of the bullpen a couple of times in the World Series. Um, so so we, had, uh, we had some pretty good arms, and uh, Don Clendenin showed up later, and, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Clendenin showed up the end of June, and a team that had pretty good pitching and needed to score a few more runs got that got that piece when Corn Bennon showed up. We platooned at a lot of positions, me and Art Shamsky in right field and, uh, you know, Cleon Jones and Tommy H. We were pretty much every day in center and, um, and left field, respectively. But we platooned around at a lot of positions, and everybody was fresh and everybody was ready to play. And, and you know, it was just one of those things where the stars got in alignment and we rode that pitching hard. And, um, you know, uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, no question. Now, you know, back to the 1969 World Series, of course, you know, you, you, made, that, you made that tremendous catch. Take us back to that moment and what went through your mind as you ended up leaving your feet to make that, you know, make that tremendous catch to help save that game. Well, you know, um, I always joke about this because Joe Pignatano told me one time, um, don't think, Svoboda. Pignatano was a coach back then with Gil Hodges and Rube Walker and Eddie Yost was the third base coach and Pignatano, you know, and I think there was a, there was more than a grain of truth in it. He said, don't think, Swoboda, you only hurt the team. In other words, don't overthink a situation, um, you know, you, you, you know, be reflexive, know what you're doing, uh, be prepared, know, know the situation you're in. But, um, you know, Eddie Yost um, uh, took me out there and got me on the end of his fungo bat and hit me line drives and ground balls, and I practiced getting good jumps off the ball. And I, it meant something to me uh, to be um, the outfielder in right field. Um, Gil Hodges early on was using uh, Rod Gasper as a, as a defensive replacement for me late in ballgames. That, that, that tore me up. I, I, I wanted to be there. I didn't want him to have to make that move. And, and I was going to make myself better and convince Hodges he could leave me alone. If you put me in the game, you know, if you pinch it for me, that's one thing. But to take me out as a defensive replacement, I was like, no, I don't want that to happen. And the only way I can change his mind is to is to become a better right fielder. And Eddie Yost uh, was, uh, you know, went a long way in, in, you know, with the thousands and thousands of, uh, of balls he hit me. I got better out there. And, and uh, you know, and, and that was that was that was the difference for me in in, in being in a situation where uh, I felt like I could take some chances on some balls. And that situation we were in, think about this: we we 
we had taken the first two of, of, you know, we lost the first game of the 69 World Series, we won the next two, and, and in game four, we were in a situation, we had a one nothing lead in the top, uh, uh, you know, the top of the ninth inning, okay? Um, and and uh, Boot Powell's on first base and nobody out, and, and uh, Frank Robinson hits a ball that, you know, I just broke on it. I didn't think, uh, so I did what Big Lutano told me to do, and, and I just broke on it, and I got a really good jump, but I still thought I was behind the play. I'm running to my backhand in right center field, and, you know, once you break, you know, it's like, look, i got to keep chasing this on the best angle I think I've gotten, and I was on the best angle and got there just before the ball hit the ground, and it was one of those plays you could, you could, you know, you could hit me a hundred of those, and I'm not sure how many I'm I would catch. But I caught that one, and and uh, and, and uh, came up, and of course Frank Robinson was tagging at third base. He scores the tying run. So so if that ball gets by me and Boots Powell scores, we're trailing two to one. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so I could, you know, I mean, it could have gone all the wrong way, and a lot of people would have said, well, what, you took the wrong angle on the ball, you let it get up the gap. But I had a, you know, I felt like when he hit a line drive, you, you, you break on a line drive as fast as you can break it. And I don't know that you could say, if I took a steeper angle on the ball, deeper, um, I don't know that I'd catch up with it because you got to run a little further, and that ball was hit pretty hard. So, so I don't know that I necessarily get it if I take a deeper angle on the ball and don't try to catch it. So so I don't know if there was guarantees anywhere in there. It might go up the gap anyway. So um, for me to run and catch the darn thing. Um, and by the way, I caught all three outs that inning and tied a major league record. <laughs> yeah, a record that's never going to be broken, right, Ron? <laughs> <laughs> well, tied, but it's never broken. <laughs> Listen, Ron, I want to thank you for giving me some time. I appreciate you giving me a couple hey, minutes, no and best luck to you, bud. Hey, Warren, thank you. My <laughs> pleasure. Hey, still there, bud? Yeah, we lost him, man. Great to catch up with a guy who will always be known as a World Series champion with the New York Mets and one of the major contributors on a 1969 team. And, you know, unfortunately, his career doesn't end up panning out as well after that season. Spent some time with the Yankees and, of course, the one season with the Montreal Expos. But, you know, you know he has a great voice. And just listening to the interview, you know the guy is certainly well-spoken. He's had some success in broadcasting, and I believe – has done broadcasting fairly recently. So great to catch up with Ron Swoboda, obviously one of the heroes of the 1969 World Series with the New York Mets as they won the over the Baltimore Orioles in five games. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Just a reminder, check out my website, www.johnpielli.com. I got all my interviews up. I got um, nearly 200 interviews with uh, current and former MLB players in addition to 100 more or so of other interviews that I've done with analysts, personalities. Uh, includes my interview with Pro Football Hall of Famer Lenny Moore. A lot of different stuff going on in the world of sports, mostly in Major League Baseball. But we're going to take another break, and we'll finish up another solid hour here. Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to download the iPhone and Android apps available. Search MTR Radio. 
I always wanted to work in sports. Kind of got sidetracked in college, then ended up in a job and, and realized I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. Researched CSB and ended up making you know one of the better decisions in my life. Want to be part of the exciting world of sports broadcasting? You've got to check out Connecticut School of Broadcasting. We have nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. There's no stalling here. You start learning from day one. How to use the camera, learning what you're supposed to be doing on camera, getting into the radio booth, DJing. But the biggest thing for me from CSB, they helped me get my foot in the door in two of the best internships in the city. Nothing about the job gets old. It's, it's The good thing about sports is every night's a little bit different. We place thousands of grads for nearly 50 years. Contact us today. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609 601 6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609 601 6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. This is empty vlog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Faces empty vlog. 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 Welcome back, John Piella, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, as we get ready for the blog recap of the week and you know a lot of different things going on. I haven't had most of the opportunity to do as much in regards to uh, a lot of the writing, but a couple things that I did touch on in this week's blog is one thing that really kind of ticks me off is just the whole thought in regards to performance-enhancing drugs and steroids. And you know, we touched on it a little bit, mentioned in David Ortiz and. You know, odds are he probably used performance-enhancing drugs, but I've said all along that, you know, it, it's not going to matter to me until we get to the root of who used and who didn't. And the thing that bothers me the most about steroids and its use in Major League Baseball is not that the fact that the players were juicing. And I've had heated debates with people over this who think that the records are so sacred and, God forbid, somebody that was cheating in their minds can make such a big difference and change all these records. I don't even care about that. The problem that I have is when you have average people that have no ties to the game of Major League Baseball, that have no real insight to whether a certain player was using performance-enhancing drugs or not and are going to use that little accusation as a way to say that, hey, they were a juicer when there's no set proof. The problem has been you cannot prove which players use performance-enhancing drugs and what didn't. There's some that 
you know, you think are clean, but you never know. And obviously there's one, the ones that have been implicated, the ones that have failed drug tests, the ones that admitted the use of it in, in any way, shape, or form. Those are the ones that you say, all right, they did it. But what about the ones that didn't? What about the ones that have no legitimate proof? And we're talking about obviously an age, a time in baseball where Major League Baseball was not testing for performance-enhancing drugs and all the players that ended up getting away with it. Well, why is it the general public's opinion over whether a player looked like they used performance-enhancing drugs or not ends up keeping them, number one, out of the Hall of Fame, number two, out of the rest of the competition with players that were automatically clean. And I've said this all along. You look at two players, Mike Piazza and Jeff Bagwell. Neither player failed a drug test. Neither player were surrounded by circles of players that were using performance-enhancing drugs. Both players, when I've asked if they used steroids, did completely denied it. They did not have any ties to it. But... A guy like Frank Thomas, who has the same body set, the same body mass, was was a big guy, did the same thing or similar things to Bagwell and Piazza. Of course, Thomas hit more home runs. All of a sudden gets a free pass. And I'm not going to start the Frank Thomas did steroids campaign, but for the same reason that Mike Piazza and Jeff Bagwell are not in the Hall of Fame, Frank Thomas is. And you can't say that there's any difference in the body mass or the way the players were shaped. And if you want to just be John Q. Public and go out there and say, hey, I'm going to pick out of a list of players and I'm going to say this player did, this player did, this player didn't. It's not a fair playing field. And we talk about the way the system is set up in Major League Baseball, and it is worse than the U.S. justice system. You're talking about almost communist America in its own little country when it talks to about players who are given no right to defend themselves, players that have no evidence held against them. They don't have any evidence to put up in a court of law if this was a court hearing. But somebody could go out there and commit a mass murder and kill a whole group of people, and God forbid that never happens again, and you, 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 you hope it doesn't happen, but you know it's happened before. And these people have the opportunity to be represented by an attorney, to represent their side of the trial. They get a trial in front of a judge, and at the end, the jury's the one that decides the fate of the accused, but not in Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball leaves it up to average and ordinary people to judge whether a player did steroids or not, and they don't get a trial. They don't get representation. They don't get to even speak their own piece. They could say they didn't do it, but in a court of public opinion, it, it's, it's worse than being at a trial. You don't have any right or any way to defend yourself. And these players are being judged because of what the general public thinks without any evidence for them to prove their own side of it. And we're going to talk about players, and we're going to say Mike Piazza did steroids, and we're going to say Jeff Bagwell did steroids, and we're going to come up with all these players that you know were either popular or not popular or were decided to get thrown in this fishbowl without any evidence. But a guy could go out there and shoot a bunch of people and murder people in cold blood with witnesses or on videotape that they did it. 
but they still get to hire an attorney. They still get a trial by jury who determines their fate, but not in Major League Baseball. And I think it's an absolute shame. And that's the reason that I'm never going to get into steroids. That's the reason that I'm not going to judge players whether they did or did not do steroids because you got the clean players and you got the dirty players and then you got the other group of players that are all in this big fishbowl and the general public gets to decide who did and who did not use performance-enhancing drugs. And I think it's bullshit. And if you have any problems with it, tweet at me at John underscore PLE. I'm ready for this debate because I think this is garbage what's going on in, in with baseball players that are getting judged by John Q. Public. You know, the guy that bags groceries at a grocery store is going to say that, hey, he did steroids, and that guy doesn't get in the Hall of Fame because a couple of whispers turned into what is perceived as reality when that player has no way to defend themselves and it's absolute garbage. But before I lose my mind here, we're going to move on to topics. Bases Empty blog, johnpiele.com. Don't forget to check it out. This past week, of course, Major League Baseball lost um, a a well-known personality, a guy who had a lot of ties to the game, former Major League player and manager Jim Fergosi, passing away at the age of 71. Of course, he was known for leading the 1993 Phillies to a National League pennant, was also at the helm of this California Angels 1979 team when they made the postseason for the first time. And he, he was a guy, really the one one of the first true stars of, of the Angels franchise and a guy that probably won't be remembered for that. But you're talking about a guy who was a six-time All-Star. He was the only shortstop in Angels history to have 30 doubles and 20 home runs in a season. He was also the first Angels player to do so. And in 2013, Mike Trout, And Josh Hamilton put up those similar numbers, 30 doubles, 20 home runs in a season. They became the 22nd and 23rd Angels in the history of the franchise to do so. In terms of single-season war, and I'm not a big war guy, but I I like to use it sometimes. Jim Fergosi had a 7.9 war in 1964, and that's the fourth highest in a single-season total for the franchise's history. Mike Trout in 2012 and 2013 had 10.2, 9.2 respectively, and Darren Erstad in 2000 had 8.3. The only players in the history of the California slash Los Angeles Angels franchise history to have single-season war higher than what Jim Fergosi had in 1964. His 1971 season obviously left much to be desired. That led to him being traded to the New York Mets after the season. 1971, he hit 233 with the Angels, five homers, 33 RBIs, a career-low 107 games, which is the least amount he had in a full season since he was 20 years old in 1970. The track record he had still spoke for himself, and that's why he was traded for the Mets for not only for Nolan Ryan but for three other players. And unfortunately, the next season didn't work out. He hit just 232, 532, playing third base for the Mets. Pretty much a mirror image of his 1971 season with the California Angels. But of course, his career kind of took a little step backwards after that. He was never really a regular Major League player. The Texas Rangers ended up uh, purchasing him from the New York Mets a year later. Uh, Would end up playing until 1978, where he ended his playing career and took the job as the Angels manager. And of course, 
course, like I mentioned before, a year later, he led the Angels to the playoffs for the first time in his history. He's going to always be remembered as a manager. He took, uh, you know, you take a couple minutes, remember him how good of a shortstop he was. He was a six-time All-Star, a guy that was really the first star player in the history of the California slash Los Angeles Angels. Rest in peace, Jim Fergosi, a guy who's certainly known very well as one of the good guys in Major League Baseball. But, you know, I finished it up. We talked a little bit about Derek Jeter, and he makes his his announcement that he's going to retire from Major League Baseball. And I'm not going to get too much into this. Derek Jeter, obviously, his numbers, his records, his World Series championships all speak for themselves. There's no need to recap his accomplishments. There's no need to talk about whether he is a Hall of Famer. He's going to be a first ballot guy. But we're talking about things that have happened before. Last year with Mariano Rivera, 2000. Uh, 12 with Chipper Jones and now every year is becoming the year of a player we're getting these season-long tributes and this year it's going to be all about Derek Jeter prior to Chipper Jones in 2012 baseball hadn't really done that since Tony Gwynn and Cal Ripken uh, got both of the credit that they deserve for the two thousand during the 2001 season of course that was all acknowledged in the all-star game but, you know, you look at other players, guys like Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, even Frank Thomas, who are all going into the Hall of Fame this year. They didn't go out that way. They didn't go out with a season-long tribute. Mike Schmidt announced his retirement after a game in 1989 when he decided he just couldn't do it anymore. Imagine the tourist attractions of guys like Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Mickey Mantle, and others announced their, before the season they would retire. Ted Williams announced his retirement before the 1961 season. Few others got the send-off that Williams, Gwynn, and Ripken got, and obviously most recently Jones and Mariano Rivera got. I hope this doesn't become a trend that every season becomes dedicated to a player. Now, we, we don't need to have a whole season remembering how good uh, Hall of Fame type of players are. Their track records speak for themselves. Why do we have to recap uh, a whole career of a player every single season? And this isn't about Derek Jeter. I'm not saying Derek Jeter doesn't belong in the categories of the guys that were honored the years before. What I'm saying is this can't get to a point where every year we're acknowledging a player. Remember, Todd Hilton retired the same year as Mariano Rivera. He didn't really get the same send-off. And he may be a Hall of Famer. He may not be a Hall of Famer. Based on his numbers, he is. But we're talking about all the players that have retired and didn't get that same type of send-off. And I don't want this to be a trend that every year a player decides for marketing purposes or whatever to announce their retirement before a season to have the whole season dedicated to them. That doesn't fit the type of player that Derek Jeter is, the type of person that he is. Maybe some people within his group decided that it would be best if he decided to do this before the season. I'm sure he has his reasons. I don't think they were financially motivated. But at the same time, we cannot have every season dedicated to a player that played for a series of years. It's all about the game right now. It's not about the past. We do acknowledge the past. We have plenty of time to acknowledge a, a great career. We've spent a good long time acknowledging the careers of some of the great players that have come through this game. But the problem is... The, we're talking about the present and the future of Major League Baseball. And while we will spend plenty of time acknowledging the past and the great career of Derek Jeter, I just don't think 
that this is something that we need to get used to doing, having every major league season dedicated to a player. Derek Jeter would have gotten the send-off that he deserved if he announced this around the All-Star break or as we get into September and October. But the problem is the teams in Major League Baseball are greedy. The Houston Astros, every National League and American League team wants to fill their seats with Derek Jeter fans to acknowledge the last time he played with the New York Yankees, and I don't think that's the right motive. But big thanks to Ron Swoboda. We'll be back next hour. ton of more stuff to get into. John Pielli, pass. Rock over London. Rock Ball Show, MTR Radio Network, back in five minutes.